the um, the power in which uh, the gospel shows up in the lives of God's people is is hard to quantify. It's hard to point out, and when you see it, you know it. When you experience it, you can you can look back on, testify uh, to it. And I just want to encourage you this morning, as God's people, as we come together and we. We lift our voices up in unison, the kind of power and encouragement that that can uh, provide. We believe that the gospel is relevant and practical. We believe that the gospel is the message that goes with us, that changes and transforms us as we go through life, that this is more than just bumper sticker slogans or uh, things that we would put on a t-shirt and things that we hope to believe in one day, but the things that actually do impact our lives. And so the reason why I bring that up in the context of our congregational singing is because um, a dear family to us in uh, the life of faith, the Blaschkes, Mark and Mary, um, who are, are faithful to our church, and we've got to know them over the years. Uh, their first service attenders, they were here uh, this morning, actually. Uh, they lost a, a 26-year-old autistic son in a tragic fire this week, and I, I don't share that with you to... Um, you know, just to change the mood of what we're doing this morning or anything, but to think through the lyrics that we sang this morning and talking about the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And, and, um, and, and, uh, Nicholas is the the young man that, that died in the accident. And, um, you know, like I said, was, was, uh, very autistic and, um, very much loved by his parents. His mom, who does not attend this church, came this morning and uh, was very encouraged and uplifted by the praises of God's people, the hope that we carry on, that the grave is not the end, that the resurrection is real, and it informs our daily lives. And so um, I would encourage you, if you know the Blaschkes, um, to reach out and to be the relational community that we talked about last week. If you don't know the Blaschkes, but maybe because of their circumstances and all those different aspects of their lives you can relate to, uh, I would encourage you to do the thing that the Spirit is nudging you to do on their behalf. And uh, you, will, um, you will bring glory to the Lord. You will represent your church well. But more importantly than even that, you will impact um, the lives of those who are hurting. And, uh, and <clears throat> in the conversation I had with Mark after the service and several other men were around him, <clears throat> excuse me, um, <clears throat> he kept pointing back to the fact that without, it's, it's like as Paul says, we don't mourn like those who have no hope. Without a future resurrection, without uh, the resurrected Christ who is able to defeat death, uh, this would all be very meaningless and hopeless. And it would be uh, um, irritating to say the least, but enraging to say the most, to see that those kinds of tragedies and losses, they're so inexplicable. And so um, because of the hope that he has in Christ Jesus, because of the encouragement that he feels from his church family, they have hope. They have uh, wind in their sails, if you will, but they have direction and meaning even as they go through this difficult time. We have other families, excuse me, <clears throat> sorry for the frogs this morning. <clears throat> we have other families going through other um, similar difficulties and uncertainties and things. We have teenagers that have been injured. Um, we have um, lots of a breakdown in the body of Christ and, and lots of hurt and, and coming together and being together in a situation like this and, and singing the things that we believe from our hearts and, and trusting that God's word has something for us is more than just us checking in, isn't it? 
It's more than just doing our time. I'm, I'm always amazed when I see so many people come to our church and, 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 and it's, it's common. It's natural for, um, the pastors to look at the, the empty seats and say, who isn't here? But then to slow down and just be amazed that there are people still seeking the Lord's direction and his truth in this day and age, because everything out there is competing against it. Everything out there is presenting the opposite. You're practicing an archaic tradition. You need something because you need a crutch, those kinds of things. But the reality is the gospel transforms us and changes us and meets us where we need, where our need is. It's a very uncommon life we live. And part of what I want to get to this morning, it hasn't come easily to me this week and in an outline form or in some way that I hope that this makes sense to this morning. I, I know that this needed to be the third part of this vision that we're rolling out for our church. But for whatever reason, I, there's a several factors, but there's probably the key factor in, in this not being able to come together is I just didn't know what the Lord was trying to say to us in all of this. And so I'm going to say it the way it seems to make sense to me. And we'll see what the Holy Spirit uses. If it's a bunch of garbly gook, you can just say, I went and sang some great songs this morning. The rest of it, I'm not really sure what we did there. So, <clears throat> and I'll try to keep the frogs at bay as best as possible. I, I've titled this, as part of our faith's 2020 plus vision to engage in a rare mission. I believe that what we are doing, what we are called to do is so unique that the world doesn't see it. Not just because faith has figured it out and we've unlocked this key, but the church of Jesus Christ on the move around the globe, when it really shows up, people go, I didn't see that coming. This is what I believe that we have before us. And, and churches and, and God's people were often tempted to settle for something that's very common. Something that is ordinary, something that is attainable, something that I can, I can fit into my life a little bit because I'm pretty busy, I'm pretty distracted, or I'm pretty behind on some of my, my bills or my entertainment or my relationships or something like that. So I want God to be around. I want Him to inform what I do. I just don't want Him to invade my life. Over the last couple of weeks, I kept throwing out this phrase that some observers have, have uh, labeled moralistic therapeutic deism. Which basically, this is something as I describe, you'd be like, okay, I've seen this in action. People have no problem admitting that God's real, but the immediate um, assumption is that he's very distant. He's up there somewhere, not quite agnostic, like he's around, but I don't know him or he, I can't know him. But it's, it's just, he's okay with the distance. He doesn't mind floating out like a satellite and observing and when I need him as a bailout or as a lifeline, I can reach up and grab him. And he shows up because he's a gentleman. He makes himself available as opposed to the fact that he wants to invade my space. He wants to guide my life. He wants me to walk in steps of hope and life. Instead, this MTD, this moralistic therapeutic deism is okay with keeping God at a distance it, it convinces myself, I convince myself that he's okay with, with who I am and the biggest challenge I have in life is to be more okay with who I am and that he's available to help solve my problems and perhaps the most dangerous thing is because I'm trying to be good, I'll be with him one day in heaven. He gets it, he understands. Now, if you've been at faith for a long time, you know the destruction of this kind of message. You know how it sounds good 
You know how it is attractive. There's parts of this where I'm like, I wish I could wrap my head around that because if my life would, would seem to, for a little time at least, feel a lot less invaded by the discomfort of having to answer to someone who has more authority than me. I like answering to me. I enjoy that. It doesn't go well for me. I end up realizing that I've got a terrible boss. My friend Jeff Cucci says that because he's self-employed. He says, I have a terrible boss. And then I realize when I'm my own boss, I'm a terrible boss. So what we talked about a few weeks back was that faith as a church, I would challenge us to live a or practice a relevant gospel. And it wasn't because the gospel needs us to make it hip or make it culturally relevant. It is inherently relevant. It's practical. It changes us. It guides us. It, it leads us into all things, into life everlasting. But the emphasis that we put on the on the on the message is that you and I are going to establish a gospel practice within our body. Like we look at the legal practice, you go and you expect to see legal things done there. When you go to the medical practice, you expect to see medical things done. When you go to the church, do you expect to see gospel things done? Do we expect to have the gospel lived out? And you say, you keep saying the word gospel, gospel, gospel. What are we talking about? Simply put, and this is just one way of explaining this, but you know the elements of this. That you and I were hopelessly lost. You and I were born in sin. We inherited it from Grandpa Adam and Grandma Eve. And as the moment that we were born, you and I were hopelessly dead in our trespasses and sins. We were alienated from the holiness and the perfection of God who created his people, expecting them and wanting them to live in bliss forever until the grandparents blew it for us. Because we would have done the same thing. And we needed that rescue. God in his compassion sends his son to live a blameless life, to live a perfect life, to be a sacrifice for us that we couldn't be for ourselves. Laying his life down, but not letting it end there. Rising from the dead, conquering the grave, conquering the, the power of sin that it has in us and that we no longer have to surrender to sin so that those who see that and recognize their own sin, turn from their sin and move towards him and take him as Lord and Savior of their life. Thus, reconciling the perfection of God, the relationship between fallen man and a perfect God, that we find that reconciliation in Christ. You might say, well, we've been saying this over and over and over again for the last few weeks. The word gospel's falling everywhere. The explanation of the gospel. At what point do we get to say, I get it already? Well, take it up with Martin Luther. He's one of our church fathers and just a great theologian and well-respected. He says it like this. He says, the gospel cannot be beaten into our ears enough or too much. Yes, though we learn it and understand it well, yet there is no one who takes hold of it perfectly or believes it with all his heart. And I have to say, Amen. I look forward to teaching this. I look forward to studying it. And yet all it takes is a mere moment and a random afternoon. And I was like, do I even believe this stuff? Because why? Because he continues. He says, so frail a thing is our flesh and disobedient to the spirit. You see, our dependence on his goodness and his grace is what fuels our belief and our practice in the gospel. So many of us have our music on our phones and we have our playlist set and everything. And most of you, when you see your playlist there, there'll be a little circle at the bottom of the thing. If you hit that, it means whatever you're listening to, you can put on repeat constantly. 
This is, if Martin Luther was holding up a smartphone, he'd say, I want you to put the gospel on your playlist. I want you to hit the repeat button and I want, I want it to just play and play and play wherever you march, wherever you go. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Why? So that we can learn rote phrases so that we can speak clearly. Uh, Maybe part of it but more so that we can hold up a continual mirror in our presence that says, I am undone by the fact that I couldn't earn this myself, that I needed a God to to come into my, my, my context, to offer his son to save me from the track and the, and the trajectory that I was on. And there's nothing I brought to the table other than surrender. And he continues to walk with me and give me hope. We are going to practice a relevant gospel together. He also, we also talked about last week that we are as a church going to build a relational community. And Paul encouraged us as he wrote, wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. We said, this is our family. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because some of them might be sitting next to you, but how many of you feel like this is more family than the one that you were actually born into? This happens with us that we, we become part of the household of God, that God in some strange mystery said, I, I dwelt in temples and I came and, re- and revealed my glory so that only a select few could come and behold me. But in the new covenant, I was going to inhabit the hearts of my people. That as you became my children, I would actually be present with you so that my glory would be seen in you and through you and around you. And he brings us all together, us ordinary folk, us normal people to do something quite extraordinary. So Paul tells Timothy that I've I've done these things so that you might know how to behave in the household of God, which is more than an organization. It is an organism, the church of the living God sent out to represent the living God who has not died, no matter what culture says, that is still active and moving. And that this organism requires our time. It requires our attention. It requires our participation because it's moving and growing as any organism would. And then lastly, Paul told Timothy that the church is a pillar, which is the thing that holds up high the truth of the gospel. It is it is a buttress of the truth, which is is that beam that kind of goes up against the wall and holds it and fortifies it through our practice, through our surrender to its message. As we let it uh, walk through us and live through us, then all that we claim to believe, all that we hold up high is only strengthened because you know what? They're actually doing what they said they would do. Remember our warning that as we strive to have a gospel doctrine, there's a lot of things we can be right about. And, and the temptation is when we feel like we're really right on something, we get louder about what we're right about. And so we get so enamored with the sound of our own voice and in the fact that we're right, 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 that we forget to build a culture that practices what we preach. And in the absence of that culture, we end up as hypocrites. Or we sometimes run to the other uh, uh, side of the thing because we don't want to exclude anybody. We want everyone to be chill. We want everyone to come with us, hang out with us. I get it, man. Your thing is my thing and all that stuff. I'm not going to worry so much about holding up a standard of truth or something that we need to attain towards or grow towards. It's all about the grace thing. It's all about letting things slide. So we have this gospel culture, it seems, but we don't hold up its gospel doctrine. What we end up with is fragility. The walls are getting wobbly. The church can't take any pressure, any storms coming from outside because there's nothing to anchor our hope in, which would be the truth. 
Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. Where do we find the power in the organism that is the church or in the individual that is walking through this life with Christ in their hearts? We find them as they balance gospel doctrine with gospel culture. Let the truth inform your walk. Be faithful to it. As ugly as it's going to be, as much failure as there's going to uh, take place, as much forgiveness is going to need to be shown we do it anyway, and in that is seen the power of the church on the move. We had said that if we're going to be a true family, like any family is, you're going to have to see some of the ugly sides of things, right? And it's so tempting for churches to put on their, their polish and their best foot forward, and we're supposed to come and look the part and sound the part and everything, and then all the drama and the chaos happens out there. What if we were to clean it up in here? What if we were to fix it in here? Would things change as we went out there? If we have the gospel with us and we, we give room and safety for people to express, I'm having a hard time with that. I haven't figured out how to do this yet. Or every time I think I do, I take three more steps backwards. And I, so there's safety in being able to share that with somebody and to be heard. And so we as a household of God owe that to people as they come in. Why? Because we heard the same thing. We receive the same grace extended to us. And then we give time for the spirit to do his work. Instead of clouding it with our own judgment or all of our demands to hurry up and change, get over this, move on, come on, clean up, look like us. We don't want to wait anymore. We give time for the Holy Spirit to work. That is how the church is this living expression of the living God. A natural or probably better put a supernatural thing will occur when the church holds high this truth of the gospel and allows it to drive its culture through practice. What happens? It lives out truth. Eventually it matures enough that it has to move out of its comfort zone. And then the result is that it stands out in the world. This is a rare calling. This isn't church as normal. This isn't church as ordinary. This isn't church as, as, as attractive or sexy or any of those kinds of things. What this is, is the gospel uh, nature of, of what God has done through the hearts of his people, moving through his people and us transforming the culture around us. These are very rare marching orders that we get. One of the most um, popular places to go, and it's actually been labeled the Great Commission, one of the most popular places to go in the scriptures to find out what are we supposed to be about? What is church growth supposed to look like? What is our mission? We go to Matthew 28, 19 through 20, where Jesus tells his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What, what he doesn't say in that tiny little phrase is huddle up and wait. He says, go and make baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. It has become a very popular thing. And this isn't just modern. We could say, well, you know, in the last 20 years or something, church growth strategies and stuff. But a lot we could look back to the old revival days and stuff like that where everything hinged on the meeting. Everything hinged on having this attractive ministry that would draw other people to it and that what would work out great is that you and I get to stay in the areas that we're comfortable in. We can do this thing really well. We do church stuff great. And at our particular church of faith, we do things really kind of cool, fun to be a part of. 
It gets noticed out there and that sort of thing. It'd be very easy for us to hide within the walls of the church and say, hey, come on in. We'll be really nice to you if you come. We'll have great music. We'll, well, I can't say much about preaching, but we'll have good classes for your kids. We'll have all of those. So you come, you come check us out. It's a very tempting place to stay. There's nothing wrong with people from the outside coming in to see what's going on. We want that. But it does all kinds of wacky things in the minds of Christians when we feel like I can stay here. It's like my mall. I can do all my shopping inside. I don't have to face the elements outside. I don't have to do any of those things. But you, as you sit in the seats, you know that isn't the reality you've been allowed to stay in, right? You don't live here seven days a week like me. You have real lives and a world out there that you're, that you're charging hell with a squirt gun, it seems, sometimes. And you're doing battle with philosophies that are weighing you down. And they're kind of eroding your hope from time to time. And you're saying, I can't just stay huddled up in the Christian commune. I've got to earn a living or I've got to reach my family or I've got to do these things. It's very common for churches now to create a come and see thing as opposed to the go and tell. I want to share with you just a few things on a slide behind me. Uh, I've referenced the the book that's um, encouraged me a lot lately, The Gospel Driven Church by uh, Jared Wilson. He puts uh, a side-by-side comparison about the traps that we can fall into in the attractional church mission model and perhaps what the better side would be to it now i got to be honest with you i mean there's things of this i believe for a long time there's things of this i'm like ow i don't want to talk about this i don't want to deal with this kind of thing because i can manage this stuff a lot better getting out of my comfort zone i'm like any of you please don't ask me to do that an attractional church mission says that you see that people are in place You know, it's that kind of mindset that says, we're going to do this thing so well that when people come in, they're like, that's cool. But perhaps what the gospel is driving us to see is that it's people in places. We're still going to come together. I don't intend to ask John or Gus to start hitting bad notes on the worship team just to keep us humble. We're still going to offer what we can and do what we do well before the Lord, be good stewards of it, but not to rest in the fact that we have places to go. And that the gospel, because it walks with us, goes in those places. And are you equipped? Are you ready for those conversations? Are you prepared to show the hope that lies within you? Churches create seeker-targeted gatherings and they put on the show because they want the impression to happen. But whatever happened to just being aware that seekers might come, that there are people looking for hope and answers and they're welcome to, but that we have the responsibility to beyond what happens, beyond just what happens on the stage, but to present the change of the gospel in each of our lives, to be the body of Christ, to demonstrate how we look after one another, how we forgive one another, how we care for one another, so that people coming in are less impressed by the amazing skills of the musicians and things than they are with the love and the movement of God's people. Those environments often create a focus of evangelism. I'm going to leave that to the experts. The pastor knows how to say it better than me. I'm going to make sure I bring my people to hear what he has to say, as opposed to, I want them to hear my voice. I know their stories. I know their backgrounds. I know how Jesus wants to reach their needs because I'm acquainted with them and send the message out to them. Churches get pragmatic. They start to decide doing things based on what works as opposed to what's right or what's true. Start to look at things like, well, a lot of people are coming. It must be working. 
There's nothing wrong with numbers. I love big crowds. I, I sing louder when there's hundreds of voices behind me. I love the, the energy that comes from lots of people coming. I don't think there's anything more godly about smaller crowds. And I've heard preacher after preacher after preacher justify a dying congregation by saying well, it's because we preach the truth. But when congregations swell in attendance, when they grow numerically too quickly and there's no health to back it up, all you have to do to find out whether or not we're talking about growth or swelling is touch it. If you touch swelling, it reacts. Ouchie. If you touch growth, it's strong, it's stable, it can endure the pressure, it can endure the, the uh, persecution. So we have congregations all over the world. And I'm, please understand, I'm not trying to sound better than them. Given the right circumstances, I could be that guy. We have... If I'm speaking from the heart here, we have resources at faith because we have a few more people than a lot of churches get to experience it. It's fun to be able to cover those things. It's exciting to be able to say, hey, you know what? You need some money. Here's a check. That's that's exciting. It's great to be a part of. But we're not trying to build this numeric powerhouse so that people can can look at us from the street and go, that thing happening on KMD, that's some impressive structures, attractions, all those kinds of things, they come and go. They have a tendency to puff up pride more than they do breed humility. So why would we chase that down? Churches striving to be culturally relevant by being hip or cool or relatable often forget how to be culturally engaged. One of the things on on my list that didn't end up on the screen is something worth talking about, though, is preaching as application. And you say, wait a second, we just said we were going to practice a relevant gospel, that we are going to learn how to apply the word of God. When we did our chat surveys and we said, what do you think, you know, you want to see strengthened and what matters to you? So many people said, I want to be able to apply the word of God. So this, what I'm about to say, does not extinguish that that passion or that uh, that uh opportunity to do that sort of thing but you'll see it now as you see teaching from around the country people are trying to make it so clear on how to have a better day have a better week how to improve your work situation it's no longer just the prosperity guys who say god wants you to have a million bucks tomorrow now it's showing up in every message about just how to have a little bit more jesus in your life and your life will go better almost like a promise it becomes very self-help driven with Jesus sprinkled into it rather than proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is, holding him higher and then allowing people to be drawn to him and say, he's the only one who's going to get me through any of the things I'm going through. He's the only one who has hope for me in my circumstance and my situation. So keep holding him up and I'll find him instead. That's how we have the gospel as a center of what we do as opposed to just a feature, an add-on, something that we tag on at the end just to justify all the cool things we want to do. That's the difference between go and see, I mean, come and see versus go and tell. Let me just wrap this up with another few minutes uh, as we get through this here. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It's way too tempting for us to stay in the demographics of similarity. The people that we know, the people we relate to, if I'm being honest with you, there are aspects of culture that I have the utmost patience and compassion for. And then I have other aspects of culture and, and, and just mind uh, process and all that kind. I have no patience for. 
And there's a lot of Jonah in me where I'm like, I know God's got saving message for them. I just don't want to be the one to deliver it. I don't like those kind of people. I don't want to deal with that. And there's so much of that there that the message of the gospel says that you need to conquer rare territories, that you need to move in places that the, that the rest of the world feels safe to kind of stay in, that we cannot feel safe in those areas. We need to make disciples with anyone, anywhere. Jesus is saying that if anyone would come after me, and not based on where they're born or what their background is or any of those kinds. If anyone would come after me, he's going to qualify what it means in a second. Instead of making it sound like, oh, everyone's welcome. That's fine. Just come out, whatever you want to do. But he starts off by saying, if anyone would come after me and they're willing to deny themselves, take up their cross, lay their life down and follow me, I'll take them. Will we take them is the tough question. If Jesus is willing to take them, who am I to say, I know the gospel's for them. I just, I don't want to be the one dealing with it. We conquer rare territories with this very rare message. What is this message? This is, this is a message from alienation to restoration. So many times we've said, I, I want, I want um, my, my small group leader to tell my friend about Jesus, or I want that pastor to tell my friend about Jesus because they have the right words, or I wish they were there for baptism Sunday because some of the coolest stories happen and they just need to have their minds blown with how big God is. And I get all of that, and I love to hear our stories around baptism Sunday. I love the fact that Jesus will, will be at the end of any of our roads, any dead end we take, and the, the wanderings and the ponderings that we have, he will supply the answer to those things. He will, he will chase us down that road and be the answer. But some of us have very, maybe boring stories of conversion. It made sense to me. Or something like that. When I was nine years old, my family was going to church, and the preacher said things that I believed in my childlike faith. I was like, sounds good. I didn't have a whole lot of rough living to undo in my life at nine years old. My conversion story, very, very boring. And, and it wasn't until I started realizing that girls didn't like the gospel is when my first challenge came. Am I going to follow God? Girls don't want to go to church. I want to be where they are. That's when the Lord started making sense to me. Like, am I real enough for you? You see, our stories are different and, and we all will have the story of alienation to restoration. Whatever happened to, um, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. The story of what happened between your blindness and your vision or your lostness and your foundness can be very dramatic, very compelling, very relatable to some people who've had those same things, or it could just be no matter what I went through, I was alienated and because of all that he did, I have been restored into fellowship with him. Please, as God's people, do not discount the power of that story coming from your mouth to the people you care about. Your story doesn't have to be compelling and dramatic in all those ways because the focus of it isn't how, how, how dramatic it was for you, but how faithful God was to you. And we can all point towards that. We can all share that hope with other people. That is the gospel transformation taking place in our lives. It's up to us to be available. I want to close with just a passage of scripture, a little bit of a long read here, but I think we won't have time to exegete it and to talk about all the different phrases and things. But I think uh, Paul does an amazing job encapsulating what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. 
He writes to the church in Colossae and he says this in chapter three, beginning of verse one. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Here's the tough part for us. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. We are, we are married to the dramas, the difficulties, the affections, everything of this earth, and how rare would it be to have God's people walking around and having their, their eyesight, having their thoughts and their wanderings uh, somewhere else bigger than the things that are on the earth. For ver- verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ is who, who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's jump down to verse 12. Put on then, put on this very rare article of clothing is what Paul might be saying. As God's chosen, chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. I mean, you guys forgive each other? You don't just, you don't just wait for the difficulty to die. You don't just harbor a grudge until you can leverage that, that to get back at that person later on. You mean you're not always angling for revenge. I am not understanding the language you're speaking. This is what the world would say when they see this being lived out, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. That's where our fuel for that ability comes from. So you may also forgive. Verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Who does this? How, how can people walk around and have this uh, unquenchable peace and hope that they, that they walk in? Similar to the testimony of the, the, the parents who are grieving to be able to express the peace that they have in Christ in the midst of great difficulty. To which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A rare people will take a rare message to the ordinary world of the broken, the forgotten, the rejected, the abused, the afflicted, even the high and mighty and the arrogant, and make such an impact on the world that they will have to acknowledge in turn that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead and he has saved us from our sins. Let me put it simply, the last three messages of practicing a relevant gospel, building a relational community and engaging in a rare mission simply could be said this way, that we are to bring home the gospel, we are to build our home with the gospel and then we are to leave home with the gospel. So it doesn't just stay to ourselves. These are the engagements that we get to see happen in the life of our church through different events or different outreaches and just day to day life and all the mix of how the whole thing works together that we are striving to demonstrate the grace that we have been found. And we will do that through the vehicle of relationships and compassion to lead others to him. This is the call on our lives. This is the hope of this leadership that we would move in this direction together. Would you please stand and we'll close our time in prayer.
Lord God, I want to thank you for your work. I want to thank you, Father, for the work that you've done in each of our hearts individually. You continue to bring a body of people to this place, Lord, who are broken and committed, who are restored and healed by you. And in their own way and in their own backgrounds and stories, Lord, they are expressions of their living God. And so I pray that you would help us all as ordinary people come together in this great collective extraordinary mission. I pray, Lord, that you would use us for these very difficult times to be a beacon and a hope and a lighthouse. Help us to point people towards true healing, true restoration, true forgiveness instead of selling, uh, settling for cheap counterfeits that the world offers. But Lord, help us to be changed by it personally. I pray, Lord, that the very lives that we live would be so marked by the gospel and its effect, Lord, that people can't help but see it. Thank you for your grace that moves us each and every day in the mercies that are new to us every morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.